Uh, you, you're deleting the shit out of that. Some people influence small events, and some people are really good at instruments, and some people change a whole genre or create a whole genre on accident, or some people create such a folklore iconic image of themselves that it's burned into history forever. And then there's another type of people, and honestly, I don't think I've ever found any others besides these two. I'm sure there is somewhere, and I'm sure we're going to find them as we make our adventure through this podcast. These two people single-handedly put the entire music industry on their back and recorded some of the finest and greatest music of two generations solid. They are responsible for nearly all the information and artists that we have provided you on this podcast. We didn't even realize it was the case as we began our research, and these two got their own episode out of literal sweat equity. They pulled their weight, and the Lomax family truly deserves the spotlight we're going to give them today. I'm Pat. I'm Ian. Thank you for listening to Do Check Out the Song. Oh, welcome, guys. I mean, it's a long time coming. If you've listened to any of the episodes coming up so far, it's Lomax this, Lomax that. Yeah, we've mentioned them at least in 50% of the episodes we've done, at least. And even the ones where we just glossed over their small involvement, they were there still somewhere in some weird third degree. It's like Kevin Bacon, but for recording in the the 1930s to 50s era. I guess it's really earlier than that. When is when is John Lomax? I guess we. I'm I'm already. I'm about ahead. to get. To I'm that. already getting way ahead of myself <laughs> here. I, I guess you can't, if you guys can't tell, I'm excited about this episode tonight because we've been set up on this for a while. I I uh, I really like the Lomaxes. They're fucking awesome. Yeah, and so like Pat said, we're covering John and Alan Lomax. Now, obviously, we got to talk about John Lomax first because he's the father, right? I mean. Just makes sense I chronologically. Mean, that, does, that does make sense for yeah storytelling purposes. So, John Avery Lomax was born into a farm family on September twenty third, eighteen sixty seven, in Goodman, Mississippi. And although he was born in Mississippi and died there, he would consider himself a Texan for his entire life. <laughs> because when he was a baby, his family moved to a farm near Meridian, Texas, in the central part of the state. Ah, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, so he pretty much was born and raised Texan. Yeah, he'd return to his birthplace for, like, his dying years, but he would still be a Texan during all of that, huh? Oh, yeah, he was a Texan his whole life. John's childhood was shaped by a variety of musical influences. You know, he heard the stirring hymns of rural Methodism, you know, at, like, churches, camp meetings, that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's damn fine music. But most importantly... The family farm was located near a branch of the Chisholm Trail on which cattle were driven from range to rail yard. And he often heard folk ballads and cowboy songs that were sung by actual cowboys. When he got to his teen years, he began to write some of these songs down. Yeah, we actually covered this in a previous episode. It was it was the episode where we talked about, you know, the actual uh, birth of the cowboy mentality taking out of kind of the hillbilly thing. And yeah, John really... that. 
he quotes that for a long time is like that was the influences these cowboys riding by were always just oh yeah and this is what he initially became famous for too as you'll see i mean he heard cowboy songs throughout his daily life and was taken by it if you don't know what the chisholm trail was it was a trail used in post-civil war era to drive cattle over land from ranches in texas all the way to kansas city you know rail yards yeah i mean i'm glad you clarified that because i had no idea what the chisholm how's it chisholm chisholm so c-h-i-s-h-o-l-m uh chisholm that's an interesting word and like a lot of rural post-civil war texas the lomaxes often missed out on school in order to work on the family farm family's got to make money and food and stuff first yeah you gotta put food on the table but his father was a staunch supporter of education and made sure that his children attended school as much as possible and john would eventually attend granberry college a methodist school that would basically be a high school equivalency today for a year between 1887 and 1888 and that was enough to qualify him for at least in that texas frontiers days to teach at weatherford college a new school that evolved from granberry God, that, that qualified him to teach? That qualified him to teach. Oh my. Essentially, he graduated high school. Oh, sweet God. But John Lomax was not done learning. So in summers, he'd head up north for further education. He'd attend places like Poughkeepsie Business College, spent several summers in Chautauqua Institution. Chautauqua? Yeah, I think that's how you pronounce it. It's a, an adult education resort in western New York State. And they had, you know, a ton of lecture series, you know, where the speakers would kind of bring in progressive ideas from the 19th century. You know, I mean, probably not like the progressive ideas now, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, uh, that's probably a whole new level of progression. <laughs> I don't want to make that comparison. So in 1895, John Lomax actually enrolled in the University of Texas, but his literature professors did not like his habit of collecting cowboy songs. <laughs> they they didn't like it. Nope, they wanted him to study the classics. Oh, of course. It's always that the people who think the class specific thing that they like is quote unquote the classics. Yeah, it's probably a highbrow thing. Like, no cowboy songs. Mm, th those aren't people who should be here. Yeah, we want true laureates. Hmm. But despite his professors not liking that, you know, he really studied hard and he finished his coursework for a BA in two years received a degree in 1897. He did stay on at the university, though, as, get this, a secretary to the president, registrar, and steward of the men's dorms. <laughs> That's some uh, that That's great studying for music. Yeah, great studying for music, right? Yeah, exactly. It sounds like they were like, we kind of like you. We're going to keep you around, but you have to do all of the bitch work. Oh, and this job paid 75 bucks a month, too. Oh, that's, I'm not sure if that's good or not. I have no idea. But then in 1903, he actually started teaching at Texas Agricultural and Mechanical College, Texas A&M. Yeah, yeah. I'm not, I'm not sure why I'm cheering for Texas A&M, but yeah. <laughs> go sports team? Go, go, I don't know. Education, yay. <laughs> go books. <laughs> he would end up teaching there until 1910. But in 1904, he got married for the first time. Number one. Number one to Bess R. Brown. And they would eventually start having kids, and that would start keeping him busy. But nonetheless, he ended up receiving a master's degree in literature in 1906 at the age of 38. 
No, that's that that's awesome. Yeah, right. Yeah, that's fucking. Really I mean, cool. this guy I just loves to learn. That's re- that is really cool. And so, what year is this? You said nineteen ten. No, this is nineteen oh six. He stayed with Texas A and M until nineteen ten. Oh, okay, all right. And so, after he received this master's degree, he took a one year sabbatical to study at Harvard University, where he received a second master's degree. <laughs> Two master's degrees, huh? That's fucking awesome. What's this one in? I couldn't find that one. Oh, but he got a second master's. He got a second master's. I mean, that's pretty badass. Yeah, it's going to be like liberal arts or something. I don't know. But this was actually a turning point in his career because he actually had faculty members who, instead of looking down on him for collecting cowboy songs, they actually encouraged it. And so we should all give a thank you to Barrett Wendell and George Lyman Kittridge. Because without them, he probably wouldn't have studied what he studied later in life. Well, damn. Hey, those two guys are fucking... Uh, let's get them way away from the asshole spotlight this evening. Because they propped somebody up and assisted in them, you know, in their growth and whatever it was. And it assisted the whole world with music, so... Exactly. And so, between 1907 and 1910, they actually steered him towards fellowships that would allow him to spend his summers traveling through Texas with a notebook, right? And... A permanent wax cylinder, you know, to record things on. And he did this during the summer. So he would teach all school year in the summer. He would travel around and start collecting songs and writing them down and recording them and stuff. That's fucking awesome. Yeah. He'd even put like advertisements in like cat in cattle industry newspapers, you know, looking for singers. He'd go to night spots, just looking for people, people nobody knew. Well, I mean, that would kind of be their trope for him and his son's kind of whole life is they'd go digging in the deepest, darkest places for the best musicians, and they came up with some serious gold. Oh, yeah. Just wait. And so along his travels, he ended up at the White Elephant Saloon where he actually heard a song called The Old Chisholm Trail you know, from a group of old cowhands, you know, just guys who were taking a break from getting cattle where they need to go, right? Yeah. And he heard the song Home on the Range from an African-American bar owner and even heard the song Get Along Little Doggies from a gypsy woman who lived in a car. (laughs) That's fucking awesome. And not just these, but a ton of other songs. These are just good examples. But like that right there, Home on the Range and Get Along Little Doggies, like those two songs are ingrained in our culture so deep. Oh, yeah, without him, like, these songs would have disappeared from history books. Like, nobody would ever uh, have heard of them. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, just try and think of that. Like, I'm going to say that a good portion of you probably know at least one of these songs or have heard it and didn't realize it in, like, a cartoon or something. It's so ingrained in, like, national culture for for North America or at least uh, the United States that it is is highly impressive just of how a few simple songs like that transitioned. Oh, yeah. It just shocks me. I did not know that John Lomax was actually responsible for those songs being known. Yeah, those are, well, I mean, it's it's those little weird 30 songs that really stuck with our, our culture, and we didn't even realize it. And so, with all this traveling and writing down and recording he was doing, he decided to release an actual publication of these songs. It was a book called Cowboy Songs and Other Frontier Ballads, and he released that in 1910. That's fucking cool. That's, yeah. That is super awesome. And this is this book is really the way that he taught people about cowboy songs because nobody really had known of them other than like people in Texas and stuff. Yeah, it makes you really wonder like how much that that alone really shaped the the cowboy mentality that would come up 
like it would come really popular over the next 10 years like, oh yeah i like, mean even the top tv shows are all fucking cowboy shows for the next 20 years and like if you really look at tv ratings over the like once tv kicks in obviously but like the the very first era of popular shows are all like cowboy shows oh yeah i mean think about who we covered earlier this season jimmy rogers you know, he had that cowboy in- image, even though he wasn't one. Yeah, exactly, because it, it it was such a good like selling image. I think it really appealed to like the 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 nationalism U.S. thing at the time too. So being a cowboy was truly patriotic at that point. Here's a fun little fact about this book, though. This book was actually dedicated to President Teddy Roosevelt. Hell yeah, <laughs> fucking Teddy Roosevelt, boys! I knew you'd like that one. Oh yeah, all right. That's uh, no, that's fucking awesome <laughs> that he dedicated his book to the president. That's 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 pretty rocking. And actually, this brings us to our first do check out the song, "The Old Chisholm Trail" by Michael Martin Murphy. Ooh, this was a good one. I really like this one. Yeah. Home on the Range by Pete Seeger. Got to throw some Pete Seeger in there, right? Yep. Uh, Pete Seeger is another good mention who's gotten a few mentions through the seasons. Roy Rogers, Whoopi Tayo, a.k.a. Get Along Little Doggies. Oh, Get Along Little Doggies. I mean, nobody's going to do that song better than Roy Rogers. So. Yeah, I don't think it's possible. And I will say, you know, these songs aren't from this era, but I feel like they have the best representation of what this music is, right? It really is. I mean, it's... Anyone who's listening probably has a more modern music taste and doesn't look back at classics like Get Along Little Doggies or Home on the Range as, like, influential music pieces. You know what I mean? A good portion of people in the, the modern day are going to see those as either children's songs or... That's exactly what I was going to say. Yeah, or or something they, they made vague reference to in some thousand degrees to, to reference hood. You know what I mean? Not, not a lot of people are going to realize that, like, these were actually, like, good folk songs. Like, coming out of an era where music was very much more stale. And these, these like, slight uh, emotional intonations and a little bit of wordplay was a big step for them at this point. It's still, like, 1910, man. Yeah. And so because of this book's publication, John Lomax actually became recognized as America's foremost authority on cowboy songs. And so he ended up traveling around the country and he would give lectures at colleges and universities, you know, about cowboy songs. He would even illustrate these songs by giving them a ringing yodel. And one of his friends would even say, and I quote, it made the listener feel the dust, the great grass ocean, the harrowed bellowing steels of the plains. <laughs> well, I mean, if you can build that sort of image in the listener's minds, you've got a good selling like song right there. And so... In 1911, he ended up working with the University of Texas. He didn't stay there for a while, at least till 1917, after being caught between a political tug and war of Governor James Farmer Jim Ferguson. Ferguson, and, <laughs> Farmer Jim Ferguson. Yeah, <laughs> in the university. So I couldn't find exactly what this was about, but I assume it was over money. <laughs> I don't even know, but there's just with that name, it throws up like a, a comedic sort of scene that I'm really not going to enact on this podcast, but you can all use your imagination and imagine the giant white hat that guy wore. <laughs> he probably had two six-shooters in his belt. <laughs> I'm the governor. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> don't mess with the governor. <laughs> and so, on January 31st, 1915, going a little back in time here, but it's for a good reason. In Austin, Texas, Alan Lomax was born, the third of four children. 
And so here enters our second. Oh, yes. The the second star of the episode. The first time we've ever really had, like, we've had two people in an episode before in the, in the early first season, but we've never had two people that was, like, I don't know. It's like, it's Lomax and then Lomax 2, the revenging, where, like, his <laughs> son is born and it's him times two. <laughs> it really did, like, in later years seem like it was John Lomax times two. You'll find out why, too. Like, if I would have taken the time to listen to all of this music, I would still be listening to all of this music. Yeah, no, they they, they, they record so much stuff. It is fucking ridiculous. Like, I'm not even joking. You can look at any musician from this era, and I guarantee if you just look at their fucking Wikipedia page, the Lomaxes are mentioned somewhere at some point. And so, after 1917, when John Lomax did lo- end up losing his job, he had four, you know, young children to support. So, you know, he had to kind of give up his rambling life and make sure he could provide for them, right? Oh, what? A rambling dad that doesn't just ditch out on his kids? Nope. And so Lomax ended up working in Chicago selling bail bonds for a couple of years. He did end up still being able to continue his research, you know, not the same capacity, but he did end up releasing another book. And this one's called Cowboy Songs, Songs of the Cattle Trail and Cow Camp. And was, this was actually published in 1919. So this was nine years later. Well, I mean, shit, he's, a, he's an established author and like cowboy laureate, I guess. But so, still having to support his family, he just continued to, you know, work a normal, yeah, a normal, a normal job. person job. Yeah, he continued in the banking industry, eventually becoming an executive in the bonds department at the Dallas Republican Bank in 1925. I know we've all heard of that place. I use it. Oh, yeah, Dallas Republican? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right up here in Seattle, Washington. And one thing I did not mention is in 1910, he co-founded the Dallas Folklore Society which is basically a society of people who started collecting songs and stuff like that. And so even throughout the 1920s, while he was working full-time, he kept in touch with these guys. Ended up meeting, like, a poet named Carl Sandburg. Carl Sandburg's awesome. I really like Carl Sandburg. That one's for you, Pat. Oh, you threw that in there just for me? Yep. And, you know, he'd just end up talking with, or, you know, like, pen-palling with these other uh, folklore collectors. You know, so he at least kept in touch, but he really wasn't doing all that kind of stuff. You know, he had to had to keep his kids alive. Well, that is a badass move. And I need to say no more. Like, so far we're doing good. We're on the track. We're building that low max legacy. Like, I, I was a little concerned. I'm not going to tell I'm not going to lie. The last few days I was worried, like, shit, Ian's going to show up on Wednesday and he's going to be like, yeah, by the way, like, John Lomax, yeah, literally, like, kills kittens. Or, like, you know, just, just some ridiculous <laughs> shit. Because that's always, like, in this show, I, I feel like I've had my heart stomped on. Like, you always hear about don't meet your idols. Do yeah. not do not do <laughs> deep research on your idols. You find the, the most painful things that you could ever find, the deeper, deeper you really uh, reach in on someone you care about. And so far for us to be this far without a, without any warning signs, fair weather, sails up, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty good with that. Well, I'm glad you said that because the year 1931 was not good for him. God damn it. Did I just, did I cast or curse him from the future? What the fuck? First, his wife dies. Dude, God damn it. And then, of course, what we always talk about around this era is the Great Depression. Yeah, we all have the fucking Great Depression, of course. And being that he worked in the banking industry and the banking industry collapsed, he didn't have a job anymore. Oh, Jesus. And in 1932, at the age of 65, 
you know, when most people would retire, he was talked into embarking on a new phase of his career, the one he would become most known for. In fact, he was talked into by his two sons, Alan and John Jr. John Jr. is oldest. Yeah, I've never actually heard of John Jr. Is, is he actually part of this? He basically, him and Alan basically talked him into start traveling around and recording music. Oh, but Alan went with him. John Alan didn't. Went, yeah. Oh, well, okay. Alan was like 18, you know, like young go getter. Just learning life, yeah. you know, didn't have to like have any responsibilities. So, oh, well, that's, I mean, that's perfect timing for all of us who love music. It wasn't just John Jr. and Alan who helped out John Lomax. John's two daughters, Bess and Shirley, would become heavily involved in his musical efforts, along with a woman named Ruby Terrell, who John would eventually marry in 1934. Oh, Yeah, so he did, he did find some love, you know, at the age yeah, of... number two. Yeah, number two. So Aww, in, in, like, a sweet way, number yeah, two. Yeah, exactly. And they helped, like, catalog and stuff like that, you know? Yeah, well, that's... I, I mean, honestly, so far, this is already, like, a... Like, like building a nice heartfelt tale. Now his family's chipping in, you know, like we had the little Disney pain where the mom went down, you know, oh no, mom's gone. But now, now the rest of the family's coming up yeah. to help dad get over his feelings for his wife. Yeah, exactly. 65 year old dad, dad, we're going to help you see your dream forward to become the greatest cowboy poet laureate or whatever you might call it. And then, uh, and it goes so much farther than that. I, I don't want to get too much into it because I, I'm already, like, excited just because this is such a good story. Oh, this, this is where it really gets going, too. All right, let's hear it. Let's get to the big trip, the real big first trip. And for this, we got to back up a year to 1933. John Lomax went to New York and pitched an idea for a comprehensive anthology of American folk songs to the McMillian publishing firm. They liked the idea. So then he headed for the Library of Congress in Washington, D.C., to do research at its archives of the American folk song. He offered to travel the country collecting songs for the archive in exchange for the loan of recording equipment. His proposal was accepted, and he was also named honorary curator of the archive. Oh, yes. This thing, the Library of Congress, it's fucking, it's so amazing. I love this portion of it because it saves so much or like music for us. And so... In July of 1933, he acquired a 315-pound recording machine that made acetate discs, a.k.a. 78 RPM records, and mounted it to the trunk of his Ford sedan, giving him, basically, a portable recording studio. Wait, so his trunk had a, a, a vinyl carver in it? Not just a vinyl carver, a 315-pound oh, vinyl carver. <laughs> that is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> That is awesome. That is so cool. That's why I didn't tell you about this, because I knew you were going to enjoy this oh, one. Oh, man, that is, that is really fucking really awesome. Hey, uh, where's the recording studio? Oh, it's outside in my Buick. And so John and Alan Lomax armed themselves with camping gear, cots, and cooking utensils and traveled the southeastern section of the United States in four months, covering 16,000 miles. Holy sh- In four months? In four months. And still, like, managed to look for people and try and, like, recruit artists and get music as they were going through? Like, oh, oh my yeah. God, dude, that is, that is ridiculous. They, were, they did nothing else. They just drove around recording people. That is amazing. And so Alan Lomax actually wrote about this first big trip, and he said, I quote, in the summer of 1933, Thomas A. Edison's widow gave my father an old-fashioned Edison cylinder machine. 
which he might have confused with the 78. I don't know. Mm-hmm. So that he might record Negro tunes for a forthcoming book of American ballads. For us, this instrument was a way of taking down tunes quickly and accurately. But to the singers themselves, the squeaky, scratchy voice that emerged from the speaking tube meant that they had made communicative contact with a bigger world than their own. Yep. Yeah, that's that's exposure. And it's in the biggest way in that era. At this point in life, you would have hardly seen anything like pre-recorded at all. Yeah. Like besides renderings by hand, like uh, ink and paint, there is almost no sort of like pre-recorded anything, you know, besides obviously like print and things like that. There's, you know, books. But well, that's not I mean, the same thing as a, as a recorded image. Or yeah, like, all you had was you had to go into the studio. Mm-hmm, that is hope someone approved to pay for you to go in the studio. Really? Yeah, exactly. I got knows how much it like actually cost with the wax cylinders and stuff in that era. I'm I'm curious to go actually look at that. I may take a look at that later. So throughout the 1930s, their main focus for research was African American music. They would record work songs, spiritual songs, ballads, and early blues really capturing the very heavily African-influenced music. Through these studies, they would record songs that would eventually become standards in American music, like John Henry and Rock Island Line. Oh, yes. Both of those songs rock. And just anyone who does it usually has an amazing version of it. And so this brings us to our second dude check out the song. One of my personal favorite songs, as soon as I heard John Henry, Mississippi John Hurt. Gotta listen to John Henry by Mississippi John Hurt. Mississippi John Hurt in general is just super amazing, but that song is like the top of his form and the top of folk songs. Oh, yeah. uh, He recorded this when he got rediscovered, and oh, he was just a solid player at this point in his life. And then the second is Rock Island Line by Lonnie Donegan. And it's just a really silly version of this song, which I think you guys are going to enjoy, honestly. Yeah, it, it, the, the song is really great. And if I wasn't forbade from ever singing again because of that one episode where I sang twice, uh, honestly, I uh, I would be uh, singing it right now. My, my head's playing the Rock Island line. Good thing I can edit that out, right? Oh, whatever. And so we did always theorize this, but now we have proof. They did tour Texas prison farms recording work songs, and ballads and blues and stuff like that from such people as James Ironhead Baker, Moe's Clear Rock Platt, and Lightning Washington. Oh, I, I thought I was going to know one of those people, and he said Washington instead of Hopkins, so I have no idea who any of those people are. Neither did I. But, you know, they really wanted to record these songs to give a representation of, like, music that's untouched by, you know, essentially the modern world. Yeah, and I mean, even though we don't happen to have heard those songs, they are available to listen to because of these actions. You know what I mean? These these songs would have faded into nothingness. And if you want to check out these songs, then maybe you should do check out these songs. The Grey Goose by James Ironhead Baker. That's All Right, Honey by Moe's Clear Rock Platt. And Long John by Lightning Washington. And if you've never heard these songs, don't worry, because neither had I before. But these actually are great representations of chain gang music. Like, I even sent you the Lightning Washington version, and it's just a bunch of dudes stomping and this guy singing over the stomping. Yeah, it's really, really cool. And, of course, during this trip, you know, in an episode we've already covered is when they discovered Lead Belly. Oh, yes. 
And if you don't know who Lead Belly is, check out our Lead Belly episode. Seriously. I mean, if you're here and you're and you're listening now and you didn't listen to the Lead Belly episode, well, I don't know what to say to you. I say stop this right now and listen to that one first. No, no, finish this episode and then go listen. Don't, I guess. don't listen to Ian. I've, whatever. Throughout all these travels, throughout the whole entire 30s, the Lomaxes would travel about 200,000 miles, visiting all but one of the 48 states. Oh, that would put to get, put to shame that 16,000 miles that they were proud of. 200,000 miles in 49 states? 47. 47 states? That's fucking amazing. Because there's only 48 states at this point. Two, yeah, that makes sense, I guess. <laughs> I, I wasn't honestly even thinking about that, but that is 100% true. Yep. All right. But here's the even more impressive part. Between the two of them, they added more than 10,000 recordings to the archive of American Folk Song. 10,000 songs just by them in a decade. Jesus Christ. That is so many. That is that is fucking amazing. Like, that is just truly solid, like, good work for humanity. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. I mean, they just went around and recorded songs for people who never thought anybody would ever hear them. I can only imagine the joy people would, would see when they pulled up in their freaking Ford and they're like, hey, we've got a recording on the trunk. You want to sing for us? Yeah, exactly. We'll take it back to, you know, New York City or whatever it'll be. And it'll, it's going DC. to yeah, D.C., going to the Library of Congress. But, you know, I mean, I was trying to think of like, you know, what, what you would say in the old times, <laughs> like what, what's a big city, New York City, you know. Yeah, well, fuck you, Ian. <laughs> Sorry that I used facts. So in 1938, Al Lomax actually started turning to jazz, and he ended up recording eight hours of vocals, instrumentals, and spoken recollections, you know, from the one and only Jelly Roll Morton. Oh, Jelly Roll! I fucking love Jelly Roll. Yeah, you do. And so a year later, he ended up premiering this thing called American Folk Songs, a 26-week historical overview broadcast as part of the CBS radio series, American School of the Air. And Lomax would continue to write and direct special broadcasts promoting the war effort. He'd also release things called like Wellspring of Music in the primetime series Back Where I Come From. And this really exposed national audiences to regional American music talents like Woody Guthrie, Lead Belly, Aunt Molly Jackson, Josh White, the Golden Gate Trio, who did end up recording with Lead Belly. Oh, yeah. Burl Ives and Pete Seeger. So that's some good names right there. Yeah, without him, none of these people might not have found audiences, honestly. And so this brings us to our fourth dude check out the song. Josh White, St. James Infirmary Blues. Oh, this this version is so good. It's like one of the first like beautiful versions I've heard of the song. Cause usually it's like dirty and grimy and but no, this one's so beautiful. Truth be told, this is a song that me and Ian know pretty well and have played God knows hundreds of times. And actually hear a fresh version that does justice to the original, but is still presented in a way that is unique, but not so far off to where you like it's reinventing the song. It was actually invigorating. Until we listen to this version tonight, I had never heard this version, but it's a new take on a really, really good classic that we really don't get good representations of anymore and honestly this song's been covered a million times like this is a really good version of this song 
Yeah, and I would say that St. James Infirmary Blues is unfortunately, like, less popular than some of the other, like, folk songs that have uh, transcended the generations. I would say it's less covered than songs like, you know, House of the Rising Sun or whatever, you know, these other popular folk songs, you know, whatever you want to insert your folk song here. And so the other song is the Golden Gate Quartet, God's Gonna Cut Him Down. And this is my favorite version of the song I've ever heard. This version's so cool. It's like, and that's not even that's not even down talking the Johnny Cash version. That no. is just uh, playing up how good this this vocal harmony is. Yeah, in it's the song. There's light instrumentation in the background, and then it's these four guys doing vocal harmonization throughout the rest of the song, and it's freaking awesome. Yeah, it, it sells so good. It, like not not like sells like record wise, but like the way you hear it, the way your ears take it in and the way your your brain takes it in, it's just it's layered in perfection without any layering equipment. The yeah. the person who put that to wax was a true genius. Oh man, this song blew me away when I heard it, honestly. And so Alan Lomax even created interest, you know, with like books, records, but he would also put on broadcast with concert series like the midnight special at town hall you know which brought 1940s new yorkers blues flamenco calypso and southern ballads all genres that was relatively unknown in new york at the time and alan lomax would even say and i quote the main point of my activity was to put sound technology at the disposal of the folk and bring the channels of communication to all sorts of artists and areas that's just noble. There's nothing else to say. That's a noble act. And so in 1941 and 1942, a joint field trip was conducted by the Library of Congress and Fisk University. All of this was described in Alan Lomax's 1993 memoir, The Land Where the Blues Began, and it took him deeper into the South. You will find in the hill country of Mississippi music stylings of fife and drum and quills, pan pipes, ground hugging dance, can figure out what that was. <laughs> Ground hugging dance? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I want to, I think I, I think we've done the groundhog dance once or twice. Yeah. Is that, isn't that like, that's like 3 a.m. on New Year's, right? A couple of champagnes and yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a, a couple of champagnes after a couple of beers. <laughs> but during this trip in the Delta, he would make the first recordings of a 29-year-old singer and guitarist named McKinley Morganfield, later to be known as Muddy Waters. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, okay. I, 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 st- I throw we all like we're all one person, but a <laughs> lot of people know who Muddy Waters is, and he's awesome. Yeah, but how crazy is that that Alan Lomax and his group were the ones to discover him? I mean, while I'd say that is quote-unquote crazy, the more I learn about these guys, it doesn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me if every musician in the whole era was like, yeah, Alan Lomax is my dad. You know what I mean? Like, it wouldn't surprise me because these guys just, they they do work across the entire country. They lay hours and hours of fucking recordings with hundreds of musicians. It's It's amazing. And if you guys actually don't know who Muddy Waters is, then do check out this song. Manish Boy by Muddy Waters. Yeah, Manish, M-A-N-N-I-S-H. It's a it's it's a Roadhouse song. Yeah, this is like the perfect example of a Roadhouse song. Yeah, I, I, and I mean, if you if you don't like Roadhouse music, you probably want to skip that song just because it is uh, <laughs> it is uh, highly rep- 
or like repetitive with a with that heavy distorted harmonica in the in the guitar that uh, comes in with the weird uh, overtones. Dun, 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 yeah, dun, and it's dun, constantly dun, that dun, the dun, entire song. Dun, 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 dun. But yep. if, if you like that sort of blues, oh man, you can get down on it. Just smack your foot on the ground, you know, and just drink that whiskey. Suckle down your 1980s Marlboro <laughs> in one suck. Yeah, exactly. Watch, I don't know, Patrick Swayze. Spin kick dude. In, yeah, Patrick Swayze <laughs> in Roadhouse kick that guy. That's exactly how you listen. No, I'm okay. I'm sorry. Thank I, you, Muddy Waters. Yeah, I'm not trying to ruin Muddy Waters here with Patrick or ruin Patrick Swayze. Uh, uh, listen to both. Watch both. Patrick Swayze is cool and Muddy Waters, but yeah, you we shouldn't. We shouldn't. Co- we shouldn't combine them. It just doesn't seem like a good mix. Let Let's move forward before we talk about Patrick Swayze anymore. And so now I've been talking a lot about Alan Lomax. Let's get back to John Lomax. And so, you know, he was 65 when he started traveling around, so recording he's, stuff. So he's up in years now. He's getting there now. And so, you know, he spent a lot of his last decade of his life actually compiling this research into, like, new publications, you know, which all sold well. He released American Ballads and Folk Songs in 1934, Negro Songs Sung by Lead Belly in 1936. <laughs> yeah, which we have mentioned before. Yeah, uh, that's such an unfortunate name. I know it's dated, but fuck. Come on, give the, let the man name an album or just al- or songs by Lead Belly. Jesus <laughs> Christ, dude. Well, and actually, in doing this research, I did discover the reason Lead Belly and the Lomaxes had their little spat were because the Lomaxes ended up recording him. They ended up owning the rights to his songs, and so he sued him over that, and... So that was the big reason for the spat. So so he didn't slash or cut anybody. That still remains a mystery. Because that was our assumption in the original episode was that Lead Belly probably... Well, that was the rumor that supposedly he he brandished a knife on John Lomax anyway, so... Which, now that I'm really thinking about it, if we're talking about this era, that's even more fucked up. Like, Lead Belly brandished a knife on John Lomax, who is, what, 80 years old at this time? Yeah, he was pretty goddamn old. What are you gonna do, knife an old-ass man, Lead Belly? Jesus Christ, dude. We know you slash people with the razors. He also released another book called Our Singing County in 1941 and Folk Song USA in 1947. And he would end up writing one more book, an autobiography called Adventures of a Ballad Hunter. And John Lomax would end up dying of a stroke in Greenville, Mississippi on January 26, 1948, just after singing what apparently is a dirty song called Big Leg Rose. Wait, so he sang a dirty song and just flopped dead? Apparently. Holy shit, that's the best. <laughs> that's, that's top 10 deaths of all time. Like, that's fucking amazing. That's how I want to go. He's okay. So let's do the math. How old is he here? He lived to be eighty years old, dude. If I if I'm eighty years old and I sing a fucking nat or a dirty song about some women and some gams or whatever showing their ankles and then I flop dead, that is a legendary. That's a way to go down. Like seriously. Yeah, he went out doing what he loved. Really, at the end of the day, you know, yeah, just, singing singing songs. Yeah, it doesn't matter whether it was a dirty song or a cowboy song. Hell, it could have been a dirty cowboy song. I think cowboys had a lot of dirty songs. Let's be honest. I would assume so. I think every genre of music has dirty songs because you know music's one of the best ways to portray certain emotions. Well, and so Alan Lomax, you know, after his father's death, seemed to kind of pick up where the, where his father left off literally picks up the flag and just keeps running it is amazing 
Later that year, he released an album of music in, like, discussion between, like, Memphis blues guys like Memphis Slim, Big Bill Brunzi, and Sonny Williams. This album was called Blues in the Memphis Night. This album has been so well-regarded. It was even reissued in 2002 by Rounders Records. So this album's still out there. You can find Blues in the Mississippi Night. But if you don't want to check out that whole album, at least do check out the song Hey Hey by Big Bill Brunzi. Oh, it's so good. Yeah, it's some ultimate, like, not quite shredding, but playing some really cool shit, blues. And it really does, it's like guitar heavy. Like the first half of the song has no lyrics in it, and he's just zinging it, man. Just zinging it, man. And Alan Lomax would actually comment on these recordings. Every time I took one of those big black glass-based platters out of its box, I felt that a magical moment was opening up in time. For me, the black disc spinning in the Memphis night, spitting the chips centrifugally toward the center of the table, heralded a new age of writing human history. Oh my God, that is, that's a good quote. That just shows how much he loved being able to document people's lives through music, how much he loved being able to discover people and actually broadcast it out through the rest of America. It really is that mentality that starts to bring about like modern technology if you really like kind of focus on like the themes, you know what I mean? Like getting information to everybody, making sure everybody knows everything they need to know, shortening the distance between physical distance and, you know, mental distance in the world. This is the first step. And it truly is a magical era, you know what I mean? Most of these people had never even spoken to a person in an adjacent state. Right. The, like, if you really think about this era at this time, most people had never even spoken to another person from their out-of-state. If they spoke to travelers, it was a few times in their whole life, and it was never, like, extensive contact with outside world, and suddenly John Lomax and his son Alan are bringing these songs from all across the country and making them available for so many people in this, like, emerging era of recording. It is just, it's fantastic, and it really warms my stomach. Which is where my heart is. <laughs> and so throughout the 1950s, Alan Lomax would end up compiling and editing an 18-volume LP series for Columbia Records, anthologizing world folk music. You know, he would end up like focusing on guys like Diego Carpatello in Italy, Seamus Enos in Ireland, Peter Kennedy in England, Hamish Henderson in Scotland. And this actually laid the foundation for folk revival in these countries. How crazy is that? He didn't just help folk in America, but in other countries too. At this point, there's no way we can do check out all of this. No, that's, there's no do check out after this 18 volume LP series. Yeah. Holy shit. I, there, I'd still be listening. Like, let me let me put oh, some man. let me put a frame of reference on it. If you're a Woody Guthrie fan, there's a three disc album you can find that is just the Alan Lomax collection that he recorded of one artist. Alan Lomax recorded so much goddamn music that it is ridiculous. And the fact that he not only was into like the uh, cowboy music that his father was into, but he spread it across the world and he really showed like the aptitude for just appreciating music whatever it was. He never had a problem shifting with the trends. You know what I mean? Whatever, you, like, John was very much a cowboy music guy, and he had a very specific genre. But Alan seems to, he seems to kind of transcend that a little bit. 
Speaking of the amount he recorded, in 1958, he would end up returning to the United States, and he would set out on two more long field trips through the American South, and these songs recorded in stereo called Southern Journey Recordings resulted in 19 albums issued on Atlantic and Prestige International labels, and these were all released in the early 1960s. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, so he follows up his... 18-volume LP with a 19-volume LP. What the hell? (laughs) Not to be outdone, I guess. He's thinking like, oh, I only did 18 last time. I bet you I can put more songs on a disc this time. This is why there's not going to be any more to check out the songs in this because it's just, it's an insane amount of work. He is a machine. Yeah. In 1962, he made an extensive survey of traditional music in the Eastern Caribbean, also in stereo. And together with his Haitian and Bohemian recordings of the 1930s and the recordings that he made during this time, he would end up with somewhere around 150 hours of music and interviews. Oh, my God. That is is so inspiring. Like, okay, so just because you and I are sitting here doing this right now, it is very close to what we are really inspired. And, I mean, you know, so me and Ian, like we've said before, we're not really interested in like anything else besides bringing you guys music history with this show we love music history and music but what they're doing right there like bringing you actual music from around the world that you would not be able to hear that is like along the same lines of what we do like obviously we're not doing on any scale comparative to to alan lomax so don't ever assume that that's what i'm implying but what i'm saying is i take a lot of inspiration from that mentality because it is just so amazing. It's uplifting and and good for the world, and it's, I don't know, just built out of goodwill. Yeah, he really just wanted to get music from around the world out to everybody, dude. It's amazing. Yeah, and uh, there's no evidence anywhere that I can find that either of them became even slightly wealthy off of this. They actually kind of died poor because of their love for it. Whatever money they really had coming in, besides maybe Alan in his later life, I would assume because of how much he's getting into the professional recording industry angle, uh, that he probably did, I would assume, take home a livable wage towards the end. But that's not what it was about. You hear so much about the music industry and recording and stuff and how much it matters, like how much you're making and the financial dividends. That has nothing to do with what they did here. Well, and during my research, I did come upon an article speaking negatively of Alan Lomax, but it was like almost seemed kind of jealous of him in a way. It's just like, did he really do this for the good of music? Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, I mean, let's let's be fair. If we're going to do like a comparison like that, who wrote that article? Or is that guy doing what he's doing for the good of music? Hell no. I never heard of this guy before. Yeah, so therefore your argument's already null and void because I'm I'm not listening to anybody who doesn't immediately practice exactly what they're preaching right up front. You know what I mean? If you look like a hypocrite even in one degree, you fucking fail right up front and I'm not even replying to what you have to say. And so even with all these recordings, he even had time to go to different universities and kind of start a study of folk music and stuff like that. He was kind of really occupied with, you know, the influence that folk music had over, like, culture and stuff like that. And so he ended up, like, developing some stuff called catametrics, choreometrics, and parlometrics, essentially methodologies for the analysis of song, dance, and speech. 
That's fucking cool. Yeah, and he did this through the rest of his life from 1961 to 1995. So, like, classifications as in roots or classifications as in styles or? It's just analysis of influence, really, is what it seems like. Huh, that's, that is cool. Like, it, like kind of ways for you to see where all of the elements of music can come from or? What well, kind of the way it shapes culture, really, is what it seems like. That's fucking, that is so cool. Like, that is just such a, such an inspiring thing. And, you know, because of these studies, throughout the 70s and 80s, he'd end up publishing journal articles and teaching materials and films based on his work in these expressive styles. One was called Cantometrics, an Approach to the Anthropology of Music, first published in 1976. And it just kind of represented, you know, a new approach to the study of world music. He would release three teaching films, Dance in Human History, Step Style and Palm Play. All of these came out during the 70s. And, you know, this kind of introduced students into choreometrics, you know, essentially teachings of dance. And in 1986, he would end up releasing The Longest Trail, and it combined historical data and choreometric movement analysis to point out cultural similarities between Siberian peoples and native North and South Americans. Oh, that's so fucking cool. So he's, like, trying to, like, define history based on, like, dance movements? Yeah. I've never heard of this in my life, and I'm about to seriously add this to my repertoire of things I really care about because that is fucking amazing. That is really, like, the coolest thing I have heard in a long time. Like, seriously, to, to try and define scientifically dance, the origin of people through the dances they use and using those dance moves because it's obvious if he did it siberian and then you know north and south american he's he's testing the land bridge theory there like he's testing whether or not people came over from north and south america to siberia or vice versa in the early era whatever it may be obviously um, you know we have a better idea of it now but back then they didn't have as good of an idea of it even in the 80s so like it's it is truly inspiring to see him using what he cares about and just spreading it into something different, something more scientific and something more intellectual, but just something just as important to human history. Yeah, it really is. It kind of shows that we're all humans in this in the way, you know, we all. Yeah, I mean, all, yeah, exactly. We all share this space. Yeah. and, and It's I, so beautiful, really, if you think about it. Well, that's the one thing, like. Music transcends everything because I, ca- I, I can't even tell you how many hours I've spent listening to music from languages I don't speak. Like, so I'm a big lyrical guy, too, so that says a lot. Like, if you know my personal music taste, you know that I like lyric-heavy music that has a heavy message. But somehow in, like, a contraposto to that, I, I really love music I don't understand, and I see the 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 voice as an instrument because I don't understand the lyrics and that's a whole new like angle to everything. Language itself is an instrument. If you don't speak the language. And if you think that's cool, let's jump back a little bit again. And Carl Sagan actually used Alan Lomax as a consultant, you know, fucking serious. Yeah. Carl Sagan to get audio, to get an audio collection to accompany the 1977 Voyager space probe. Wait, so that the stuff that Carl Sagan sent into space, the, the, the audio that Carl Sagan legendarily sent into space was influenced by Alan Lomax. 
Holy he, shit. Yeah, he suggested things like Blind Willie Johnson and Louis Armstrong, the Andean Pan Pipes, Navajo Chants, Sicilian Sulfur Miners Lament, Polyphonic Vocal Music, Bach, Jesus. Mozart, oh Beethoven. Fuck, you know, like, like all of the, all of the all the music that he sent out was directly like taken from Alan Lomax. How insane is that? That is blowing my mind right now because that's something that I also have a fair amount of knowledge in, and it's not related to my musical studies in any way. And like when you're when you're interests interact like that it, it truly shows that like they're the basis of all interest music intellectual reading fantasy whatever it may be is all rooted in the same fucking thing like they're all intertwinable and it really goes to sh- show and you know like i we don't really talk a whole lot about like you know stuff besides music and we try to avoid it we always make the dude check out this blank as a joke to avoid at talking about things that are not music but in this one one serious instant, if you care, dude, check out Carl Sagan. Like, yeah, just do in, that. Just in general, this man was legendarily influential. Uh, if if you ever think that flat Earth is a thing, uh, he disproves it in a three minute video in the seventies. Fifty years ago, he scientifically disproves a flat Earth theory in three minutes. So uh, if you ever think that maybe you know, Illuminati is faking the earth being flat or whatever, go check out Carl Sagan and just learn something. And dude, don't be a flat earther. Yeah, please do. Don't be a flat earther. But I'm just trying to say like, this guy is amazing. And Carl Sagan really, I mean, you guys all know, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson. If you only know him vaguely by the fact that he is one of the smartest and most intelligent men in our generation. And also, he is able to represent this information in a fun way. Yeah, and, and actually great entertainer. Uh, I mean, we're in no way associated, obviously, a tiny little podcast like this. But if you like stuff like that, go check out Star Talk. Um, this is not an advertisement for them in any way. Don't feel like anybody over there asked me to do this. I just think that it's really fucking cool to listen to. They, they talk about some cool shit, and they are really, really fun to listen to. And so, as we digress there, let's get back to Alan Lomax, shall we? <laughs> I suppose so. You had to mention Carl Sagan, and you knew that oh, was that, going to derail I knew that was going to send you off. Well, and so, Alan Lomax, in his 60s, ended up embarking on a series of field trips to the American South and Southwest, this time with a film crew. Even script ideas, you know. Expo- adding adding to it. He's got videos now. Huh? Oh, yeah. And he started exploring, you know, regional and ethnic American musical cultures. And this resulted in something called American Patchwork, a prize-winning five-hour television series which aired on PBS in 1990. Wait, hold on. Would you say the name of that again? American Patchwork. Holy shit, I watched that. That's him? That's him. <laughs> well, my mind's blown. I got nothing to say about that for once. I usually have bullshit to spit at you guys, but fuck, that kind of rocks my childhood, and I had no idea that was connected <laughs> to this episode. Yeah, that was kind of the last big thing he did. He retired in 1996, you know, moved to Florida with his daughters and grandsons, and he would just live out the rest of his days there until he died on July 19th, 2002. And all I could find really was of natural causes. So I think he just died in his sleep. Oh, well, okay. I'm going to say died of natural causes makes me feel good because that just means he died and there's literally nothing suspicious about it. The old man went in his sleep. 
you know, and I'm the second generation of man who has truly brought us everything really we really care about in our, uh, you know, as as music people. Carmen was truly on his side on this one, but you know, let's let's kind of talk about some of the awards he's actually received in his life. Oh yeah, no, hit me with them, please. So, in 1984, he ended up receiving the National Medal of Arts from President Reagan. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, and he ended up receiving the National Books Critics Circle Award for nonfiction for The Land Where the Blues Began in 1993. He received the Folk Alliance Lifetime Achievement Award in 1995. In the year 2000, he was made a Library of Congress living legend. Completely rightfully. He received an honorary doctorate in philosophy from Tulane University in 2001. He was posthumously given... Grammy Trustees Award in 2003. Holy shit, he's got a Grammy too? Yep. Unfortunately, he didn't live, live to see that. Obviously not, but geez, like, oh my goodness. That is just damn fucking nice. That just, that is heartwarming, dude. That is, that honestly just brings a smile to my face. Are we uh, going to the last thoughts in this moment then, I suppose, huh? Oh, yeah. I can tell when Ian reaches the end of his bio phase because he makes this, like, smug face and sits back in his chair. and Like, oh, yeah. Like, Got ah, you all that yeah. info, bro. Boom. He drops the mic on me with, like, without a noise and looks over. I'm going to be completely straight up with you guys. If you guys have listened so far, you know that I, I kind of have these phases. There's, there's only a few types of themes that I'll talk about with my last thoughts. And typically, I like to focus on the positives. If you uh, are not a fan of the few other times where I've gotten, you know, kind of, uh, kind of overly sentimental and mushy with my uh, last thoughts, well, I'm I'm sure you can fast forward for a few minutes and get past it and listen to what Ian has to say because I have nothing, nothing bad to say here. I'm gonna talk about how I feel on this and nothing more. And that is honestly like I'm more inspired by Alan Lomax than I think I may have been by any single musician in my entire life. I consider myself panda musician. I consider myself panda writer and a couple other things, you know, whatever whatever my inspirations are is regardless to this situation. This is not what I am, is what Alan Lomack decided to be, but it's so inspiring and so close to what I already am that it it inspires me to really want to bring music closer to the people. And, uh, you know, I, we already do a fucking podcast where we talk about unknown artists from, you know, 100 years ago or more. But for me, Alan Lomax shows me that music means so much more to humanity than anyone can really quantify. So if you really care about music, there's only one thing that's important. You find music you like and you enjoy it. I mean, you could throw in any caveats you want. If I want to be morally dignified, I could say whatever. Don't love music that glorifies violence. Don't love music that glorifies drugs. Whatever it may be, I could, I could apply my social stances to whatever. But at the end of the day, the lesson is still the same. Music is important because it touches your soul in a way that no information can quantify. These two men gave their entire lives, two generations of a family tree, to bring us some of the finest music that we have, <laughs> here, do check out this song, have ever listened to. And it really, really is just so important for what we've done and what the world has now. And I honestly just want to thank the Lomax family. I can't do anything else at this point. 
thank them for what they did and bringing me the music that I may have never had otherwise. And uh, I'll try and pick up the torch and do what I can. But other than that, thank you. You said everything I think I could possibly say. So, yeah. So let's let's just all take this as a lesson. And it's not a lesson that I'm trying to deliver you. It's, I think, a lesson that the low maxes were trying to deliver you. Just love music. That's what we're trying to do. Yeah. If you if you love music, whatever it may be, regardless of the genre, regardless of popularity, regardless of whatever the bullshit may be, just fucking love music. Listen to people, even non-popular musicians. One of the really things I think you could take away from the Lomax's legacy is listen to the musicians on your neighborhood block. Don't li- don't you don't need the radio. You don't need some big corporation to tell you what to listen to. I guarantee there is 100 musicians within a mile of you. And I guarantee 10 of them have the best songs you have ever heard. And you know what their biggest point was? Was dude, check out this fucking song. Yeah, they 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 invented dude check out this song and we simply are just bearing that torch a generation later without even realizing it so the thing the the funny thing is he stopped his professional career in 1996 and i was 10 years old then so you know i think that's an appropriate time that's about when i started to love music so let's pick up the torch and let's carry it everybody out there who listens fucking love some musicians whoever they are whoever they are love it yeah, and honestly, if you really want to help spread the word of all this music, please get the name of our podcast out there. Do check out the song. Because honestly, like, we love doing this, and we really want more people to listen. And to avoid sounding like we're trying to sell you something, as uh, I mean, obviously, we, we want you guys to listen to our podcast and do whatever you can to support us. What I really care about is the music. So if we can yeah, get... Yeah, that's the reason why we started this is because we love music so fucking much. And with this episode, it really inspires me to, uh, like, if you listen to the one uh, interview we had between season one and two, which was supposed to be more, but unfortunately because of... Uh, COVID. Yeah, some national uh, national health issues, we did not continue that series as we couldn't get uh, multiple artists in our studio. But... With that, if you listen to us and you're a musician and you honestly believe you your music should be out and you want people to listen to it, hit us up. Like, I would love to play some music that is unheard of from any part of the world. And people's, like, you know, obviously you're going to have to, you know, do the legal thing and allow us to play this, you know, it's whatever it is. I'm not, I, I don't want people to send us music for free or anything like that. But at the same time, I want to make your music available. We can work it out just Contact, dude, check out this song. We love you. Thank you for tuning in. Have a good night.